Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. And today we're going to be talking about race in America as I am joined by retired television executive, corporate trainer, Mike Easterling. Mike is a race and diversity expert. So we're going to be letting him tell his story. And he also does a great podcast. He's going to be talking about that as well. So Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you. I really appreciate, really appreciate this. This podcast business is a great way for people to communicate and with people maybe that they wouldn't ordinarily communicate with. So thank you. Absolutely. And why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Well, my name is Mike Easton, as you know. I'm well over 50 years old and um, born in New born in Harlem, really, of Southern parents. Lived around New York. Was fortunate enough to live overseas as a young kid. My father was military. We lived in Japan. Great thing about that was my early ability to see what it's like to be a foreigner. Okay, not visit someplace, but actually live there where the country is somebody else's. And even as a 10-year-old boy, I lived there from 10 to 13. Impressionable years. I was able to see something that many Americans don't see. They think the whole world's America. Even Black Americans think that. But there, I learned earlier there was so much more to see. And it affected my, I think indirectly, I didn't know that it affected my take on race and culture when I got back home to America. Well, I mean, uh, what what was that experience like living in Japan and realizing that the whole world is not just America? Yes. This was like, uh, hit my age, this is like less than 20 years after the end of World War II, after the end of Hiroshima and, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was good. Around the base where we lived, okay, there were signs in English and Japanese. And so that kept the Americans who lived and worked in the base uh, comfortable. They could always find their way around. But if you got like even five miles away, I can remember riding my bike. We played with the Japanese kids who knew a little English because they studied it in school, as everybody does. Only Americans are only people who don't teach. Well, now we were even teaching two languages, but most people speak English in their own home language. And so we'd go places. And I remember we rode our bikes and because everybody rode bikes, uh, older people, younger people, mama-san, papa-san, everybody rode bikes. And we got out and we were riding. And all of a sudden I looked around and all the signs were in Japanese. Everything was in Japanese. Uh, and without the, we had gone down roads without these young men with me, these fellow kids with me, I would have never known my way around. So right away I was like, you know what? This is not your land. This is another land. And they just sort of taught me, I guess, indirectly to be uh, respectful of that. And as a result, also, I don't really like any kind of racial or cultural epithets, but I'm sort of uh, super touchy around things like, pardon, I'm going to say it here, like chink and slant eye and those kind of things that even we say in the black community about Asians. And I'm quick to correct my buddies or whatever, like, no, man, we don't say that uh, because those people, you know, we had made, we had friends, teachers, those people became close close to me as an individual. So it's the same thing I feel about that as I feel about race. Race I encountered uh, real early, Curtis. I always knew I was a brown child. I was a firstborn, so I was very loved. And we moved from Harlem to Brooklyn. So it was early. It was the projects, Curtis, Curtis but I didn't know anything about the projects. You go where your parents tell, take you. Looked very nice with the high-rise building. 
The trees weren't even in yet. We're sitting around as little kids would do playing in the dirt and with the trees and the hole that they'd been dug for the trees. And a little girl says, I'm having a birthday party. And kids say, oh, can I go? I can go. And she said, you can go, you can go, and you can come. And you can come, you can come, you can come. I was like, what about me? No, you can't come because you're colored. Four years old, right? And so I always knew I was a different color than the other children, but uh, I didn't know what that meant. So I remember telling my mother about it. And that was the first time, four years old, man, four years old, not even in school yet, I had to learn about how the world was for me and my kind. So that was my first experience to racism. My mom, I can remember my grandmother, I don't know why she was there, maybe she was there, gave me the whole twice as work, twice as hard, sometimes to get half as much. And that's when I embraced that. And I didn't really embrace it. I just knew that just like saying yes and no and please and thank you were part of my reality. So was understanding that I was going to have to navigate this thing. I don't think they even called it racism. They just told us that's how it was. And that's how I accepted it. So that was my first time. I don't know about other people, but that was that was early. Can you imagine being four years old, man? Absolutely. Well, tell us in your opinion what racism is and do you feel like every incident is a a racial incident? Man, that's a great question. Racism to me is really the, you know, enforcing, dominating, or let me just get this together. Racism is taking one race as a dominant race to another and enforcing their cultures, values, et cetera, on everybody else to the point of not allowing other people sometimes to have their own cultures and values. Okay, so, but to that said, so by that, I mean, um, the way people talk, walk, you know, even hear people say, you're talking white, you're acting white. It's only because people see those those values. In fact, you know, there is no such thing as acting white or not, because there is no such thing as black or white. It's just something that's been created that we live with. And it gives the dominant culture power. Is everything racism? You'll be seeing a book that I'm working with an online publisher coming out that says not everything isn't racism. Some things are ignorance, man, are straight up ignorance. People who've never had to be aware of other people's cultures, other people's needs, other people's history, never had to be aware of it, kind of knew it of it passingly, but I didn't know it really well. Sometimes those people just say and do ignorant things, and you can't chalk it up to racism. When you chalk everything up to racism, no matter what happens, and this is why I have a problem, and if you listen to our show, we know we try to approach certain racial things, not the way everybody else does, but we'll get to that. But this is why I have a problem with um, people who come who will make a living um, chastising and admonishing and, and beating up um, whites for everything, making everything racism. To me, it empowers people. If everything that happens to me negative, I blame on you. Ask Curtis Jackson, Paul. Well, what about the fact that you didn't do well in school? Oh, Curtis Jackson. And you got five for three job, Curtis. And his friends, that empowers you, man. That says is Curtis Jackson has has power over me in most aspects of my life, and I, that's just not true. It's not always racist. Sometimes it's ignorance, and I think it's our duty, when we can, tactfully, to teach, to point out to people who don't know. Are there things that are flat out racist? Of course, man. Or we wouldn't be talking about it right now. If there weren't things that were racist. This would be a topic like who cares? But in fact is there are those things are there even from the most benign and well-meaning people there are things that uh, affect race tell us in your opinion what bigotry is well bigotry can be both racist can be both black and white and there are 
black bigots and white bigots. And bigots is just to ties in with prejudice. I think if you look at one word, you see the other as a, as a um, word that, that also, is that a homonym? Is that a synonym? It means the same, okay? And bigotry is just a prejudice opinion toward a person or a thing, okay, based on how it looks, what the culture is, and what you believe you know about the culture. Bigotry, people will find people who are bigots will have a mindset of all blanks are this way. And that's something that they go into thinking right away. Okay. Hey, your new boss is a, is a woman. Oh God. Every 28 days, you're going to have some kind of problem. That's bigotry and low ignorance. Hey, your new boss is a black person. Oh man. Black woman. Oh God. Angry black woman. I can see now hands on their hips, neck working. That's bigotry. That's prejudice. That's not true about anybody. And black people can do the same thing. I hear your new boss is from the South and we can go, oh man, cracker. Okay, crack. I can see the racism now. Totally unfair. All three of those things I said were totally unfair. That's bigotry. And it can be black or white or Indian. There are Indian people that don't like black people straight out. There are minority people too, but they don't like black people, at least in America. Bigotry. How does it come into play? If you got somebody who's, if you have a black person who hears, sees because their boss is Southern, that there's going to be racism and favoritism and, 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 and those kind of things. And he runs into a boss who's who uh, is Southern, okay, and is trying to defend that. That's just an uncomfortable situation. On one hand, the black person, everything that happens, he's predisposed to see it as racism, bigotry. On the other hand, the white person is constantly trying to defend people and make people know, hey, I'm not a bigot. I'm not a racist. That's a heavy pressure. Racism puts a heavy pressure on both people. Those people who are feeling the oppression of it and those people who are trying to ride that line that, Yes, I'm part of a dominant culture. Yes, I have a white privilege, but not this angry out to get black people racist. Are there those people? Sure. But are most people that way? Probably not. Most people are going along minding their own business. The fact that white privilege exists, they go, it's not my fault, but I'm certainly going to use it. So it's, it's a tough call. And we're just like, you know, we're like, well, I don't care what you call it. You can call it black privilege, white privilege. I'd like to call it equality. So understand that just by the color of your skin, you have um, privilege that I don't have, but I deserve because I've done everything. You pay taxes, go to school, serve in the military, vote, okay, follow the law, okay, educate your children, and yet I still don't have those things. And that's part of how we live. You know, and I think sometimes people see it. I think sometimes people who are not of color don't see it. It's no need. It's like for me understanding what happens on a ski slope. That doesn't concern me. I'm not going up on a ski slope. If I hear anything bad about it, I'll feel for it a little bit, okay? If I hear something that's unfair about it, I'll say, hey, that's unfair, but it doesn't affect me because I'm not a skier. And I think some white folks hear about the problems that black people have in their schools, churches, etc. But they go, that doesn't affect me because I don't deal with black people at all. And that's why I think people come up ignorant. They don't deal with. What do they get their information about who we are? TV, the devil himself, Rush Limbaugh, shows like that. Like that. Even the, the, the uh, this is where my conservatism comes in and maybe some people call it I like to call it progressive. Even Curtis, the things that we do to ourselves, and the number one thing is rap music. That is the music. That is the biggest. That is the biggest venue to display black people, and sometimes it's not the most flattering. It's a bigger venue, I'm sure. I'm sure most more people have probably seen videos of black people singing, dancing, etc., than they have maybe seen videos of Michelle Obama, and she was very, very well known. So. That's what it is to me. The trust training I've been doing, I've been on this planet a long time and it's 
You know, racism is a very clever thing. My dad used to say to me, things are going to change. I won't live to see it. It'll be better for you, Michael. And I said to my boys, you know, things are going to change. I won't live to see it, but it'll be better for you. In fact, Curtis, things have changed, but we have to define the word change. Okay. Have the really what we want to make sure things do is change for the better. Things have changed. Open racism no longer exists openly. People no longer have to step off the curb for a black man, take their hat off when a white person goes by. People don't no longer have to call children Mr. Okay. The N-word isn't just hurled around willy-nilly anymore with no. So things have changed, but they've not changed for the better. All they've really done, and that's why I said we have to define the word change. What I would say is that they've just morphed. They've shape-shifted. They've camouflaged and blended in. And so we don't see the racism the way it used to be. As they used to, maybe they would put the uh, criminal element calls it, taking an underground. Okay, so people no longer have open or seldom have open KKK marches and those cross burnings. And when they do, the general population, white and black, usually other than a small minority, small minority, admonishes that and, and looks upon that with disdain. But it still exists. It's just changed. It's had to change because as the 70s came and people were able to get jobs like myself, fortunately enough to come out of school at the time where people were looking to hire black people, your relationship with um, black to whites had to change. So things have changed, so, but they haven't changed for the better. I'm still telling my kids things will change, but I won't live to see it, but maybe they will. And maybe and maybe they won't. I think... Um, well, what's your opinion? What, what's your opinion on uh, police brutality? You know, in the last few years, we've had a few cases. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, uh, what's the, so? What's your opinion on on that type of stuff? Yeah, and you know, man, you know, Curtis, I'm glad you had me on because you probably picked up on my podcast. I got an opinion about everything. Okay, good or bad, right or wrong, I have an opinion about everything. I think um, when we look at police brutality, and I go back to when I was a little boy, and Cops were from the neighborhood. If they didn't live in the neighborhood, they grew up in the neighborhood. Very few black cops, and, and I lived in New York City, and there were a few black parts. I remember a little girl I had a crush on her debut was a black police officer, which I thought was just fascinating. The quality of people that are being hired has just gone down. Uh, populations explode. You need more police officers. You have more places to cover. And so you and you can't get them all from the community. Everybody doesn't want to be a police officer. Okay? And so what you have is people come who are exported. Um, they still sometimes come in with the mindset, if you say criminal, okay, see a black person. There's some things that just conjure up images in our mind. Somebody says NBA, you think black person. Somebody says golf, you think tiger, and then you think what? White people. Okay. So there are certain things that just conjure up. You say police, most people think white people. Okay. I think a lot of people come in with, the idea that they can do something, but the best way to do it is control the criminal element, which they see is being black people, even some black cops, as we saw. And so I think it's low IQ of police officers, many police officers that affect the others. I think the frustration of the job makes people maybe explode with violence. And I don't think the job has the best people. They just pick the best people they can get. There's a difference between picking the best people and the best people you can get. I don't want to be a police officer. Neither of my two sons do. We're all three educated men right there that are telling they know they aren't going to do it. There was a, um, and I apologize for not knowing where I, where this was. I think it's North Carolina 
A&T, where there is now the police department. They're working with with um, North Carolina A&T, HBCU, to cultivate an area where they can begin to get educated police officers. Okay, Police officers who really know that there are things you can do without violence. America is a place that's based on violence. That's why they hug their guns so closely. Okay, The country is doing just fine. Without guns, without an overabundance uh, over, uh, of guns. But America sees everything that's gone because that's their answer to everything. You know, it's their answer to everything. And they say with the police department, we can't get it done, we go to violence. We can't wait to get the violence. You see some of these videos, you know, let me see your hands. What a guy can even get his hands up. It's like hands and then bullets fire. Okay. Because they got that adrenaline going and they don't have good decision making, analytical skills. Let me stop and say, we're standing out in front of a senior citizen's home. Okay. Someone's breaking in a window, okay? It's probably not going to be a senior citizen, but don't you think I should take my time and make sure before I shoot? Okay. It is a senior citizen. They weigh 80. They like, they're 85 years old trying to break into their own apartment in the senior citizen's home. Don't you think I can take this person down without shooting, harming? He's 85. I'm 45. I think I should be able to take... Now nah, I'll shoot him. Now nah, i shoot him. Get me a trophy. And that's just the mentality of the people you have. There aren't people out there looking to protect. Their definition to protect is uh, what you see on TV. And it's sad because I take that back. There are guys out there trying to do the right thing, but their image is tarnished by this handful of thugs. Because once again, police police departments can't always get the best people. They have to take the best people that they can get. So tell us about that show that you were talking about. You know, tell us how you guys got started and how people can listen and what, what you guys talk about. Thank you, man. Curtis, man, thank you for giving us a chance. We're struggling. We're up. We've just been left in the year. It's called Just Being Brothers. If you give it a listen, you'll hear two uh, baby boomer brothers, African-American, going at it. Uh, almost anything. We've got a show about grandparents coming up because we know a lot of our uh, audience are boomers. We also have a show. We had a show about you know foster care, horror writers. The show is not trying to help you lose 50 pounds in three months, not trying to drive a million dollars to your bottom line, nor am I trying to sell a book. Maybe one day. What we do is entertain and educate. Okay, Steve and I, we're, we're real brothers. And we're, of course, African-American brothers. That's the title, Just Being Brothers. You can find us on Spotify, iHeart, iTunes, or every place audible. And we talk about things in a conversational manner. And sometimes, Curtis, we try to talk about things differently than the masses do. Our show on Amos and Andy when we say Amos and Andy in, our, in the black community, people go, oh, racist. Oh, it was a bad portrayal of, of black people. Oh, it should have been taken off of the air. But once again, sometimes we can overdo. Here's And here's my, Steve and I say, Steve, by the way, is my brother and co-host on Jeffrey Brothers. We say, but wait, let's look at this another way. Let's not be the sheep to go like, oh, yeah, that was terrible. Oh, those, how could those people do that? First of all, the show, uh, let's look at it. And Steve and I are both actors and I'm. You know, I'm a television executive. I was on television and produced television. First of all, there's work for actors in those shows. So that was the first thing. At the time, there wasn't a lot of work for black actors. There was work. Okay. You didn't have to be a slave. You didn't have to be a butler. Secondly, other than the five, five characters, main five, maybe six, Kingfish, Amos, Andy, Sapphire, Mama, most of the people then were class people. First of all, Amos married. Kingfish and Sapphire married never any violence toward one another the streets of harlem were clean and depicted clean these people weren't violent lawbreakers they just kingfish mainly tried to get over on his quote-unquote buddy there's no violence there's no criminality there's no negative images 
but they were with some malaprops. Here's why I have to say we have to broaden how we think about things, Curtis. At the same, we can't ask to be treated like everybody else, and then when we get treated like everybody else, don't like it. Just because we we had a history of slavery, there's places to deal with that. But this is entertainment. At the same time, Amos and Andy was going on, the honeymooners were going on, and Jackie Gleason was making fun of poor Irish who lived in Brooklyn and yelled up the air vent, "Hey Norton!" You know, there's a show called The Goldbergs that was taking every stereotype of of Jewish people, and that show was on TV. Okay taking stereotypes. The Marx Brothers had a character, Chico Marx. He did every stereotype. Hey, what's going on? He had to talk a lot. Most Italians don't talk that way, but that was a stereotype that people laughed at. So that was the same thing that was going on across the board, but we took offense to it. And I understand because there weren't many other images of strong black people on television. But we also took away jobs from people and took the only depiction of any African-Americans on television off the air. Wrong protest, absolutely wrong protest because people's jobs went away. It's tough as an artist to get a, to get a job. These guys had had good jobs. They were hardworking, educated. Andy, played by Spencer Williams, was a graduate of U of uh, UCLA School of Film. I think he was uh, doing uh, his graduate work at University of Minnesota when World War One broke out. So he was drafted at about twenty years old. Okay, Kingfish, a long time grinder. Tim Moore is the actor's name. Alvin, you know, grinder out there on the vaudeville side. And we can go on. Ernestine Wade, vocalist, organist. These are intelligent people. These are well-read people. These are people who are acting. And those jobs are gone. What we should have protest for, Curtis, and those protests, by the way, were led by the Pittsburgh Courier, the number one black newspaper back in the day, even bigger than the Amsterdam News in Harlem, and led, of course, by the NAACP. Those protests should have been about more African-American people on television, not taking, not cutting off our nose to spite our face. Then some people may yell, oh, Uncle Tom, okay. No, let's look at things in a different way. More television. The next show that had African-Americans came on in 1967. That was Julia with Diane Carroll and her son, Corey, and his friend Earl J. Wagadorn, if you remember that. Then came Mod Squad with the late Clarence Williams III as Lincoln. Different depictions. But those shows stand on the shoulders of Amos and Andy. So people can run it down if they want. I choose to look. And I hear that part about images. But I'll say that please don't. And as a former TV producer, I'll say please don't come to television looking for positive role models for your children. That's passing the bug off. You want a positive role model? You be that. Watch programs with your children. and talk. I watch rap, more rap when my guy now who's chasing 50 was doing that. And I would ask questions. Why do they say that? Why do they do this? Who was this rapper again? How many times did he get shot? I want to know these things. Okay. I'm just going to pass off role model to TV. Okay. I didn't get upset when my son is walking around talking that way. I, didn't, I have to be a bigger influence. We have to be a bigger influence. Off the topic a little bit, but not exactly. No, that's that. That's absolutely right. And uh, speaking of topics, or you have any upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about? Well, we just have you know uh, we just did four new shows and they're good titles. Uh, one of them is with Denise Reverend Denise Gilmore, and she's talking about empowering women, especially black women. That's a pretty good show. The next one that that's always out also is one called Sundown Towns. These are towns that still exist in America that were. Um, Places where people had to, black people had to be out of people of color, 
should be not really welcome after sundown. And people would say, well, yeah, what do you expect from the South? You know, you go down Carolina. And I, no, when we're talking about pockets and communities that have that kind of wink, wink, it's not true. We're not like that kind of reputation. People have a reputation of, well, you don't want to live there if you're black. And even though that's not true, there's nothing legally written about that. Time, culture, legend, okay? The drum, word of mouth says, man, you don't want to live there. And what makes it so real is the white people in those communities are doing nothing to erase that stigma. They're good with it. I'm good with that. No one's rushing to say, no, we're not like that. So those towns still exist. So we talk about those, how we got the sundown towns. And then a couple of weeks from now, or maybe a week from now, we'll have grandparents. And then there's a short black history piece we have. I've got guests coming up to talk about various and sundry things. Uh, we have one lady who already did um, grief and mourning. And we were trying to set up a retake. We had a technical problem, kind of like you and I did before. And she's talking about guilt and shame, which she says they're the same thing. I'm trying to say, no, they're two different things. So we have a good conversation coming up there. So those are the projects that, that I'm working on here. Stay tuned for a book I'm working with. And I'll be talking about on my show called Everything is Not Racism. And it talks about just what I said. You know, let's look at things as objectively as possible. Let's look and see things that we can do better and stop blaming other people. Other people are doing their bit. More, It's not like the individual people. It's a society. It's a system. Okay, that's why, they write, that's why it's called systemic racism. And that's what we attack. Attacking people who are just living a system that favors them. If this system favored me, I'd be taking full advantage of it. I can't get angry at people for doing that as long as they don't do that to uh, my detriment. Okay, so as long as you want to take care of yourself, one, one, great. You want to use white privilege until we can fix that to yourself? Great. Just don't use it to my detriment of me and mine and keeping me from having things that are important, which aren't things like sitting next to a white person in a restaurant, which what we thought was important, drinking at the same water fountain as, as, as white people, which what we thought was important in the 60s. Going to the same schools with them, which we thought was important, and it is, but also things like generational wealth. That when you have a Tulsa, you wipe out generational wealth. That's usually two generations that get hurt. The generation that had the wealth, had the movie theater, had the funeral parlor, had the, the photography shop in Tulsa, or wherever, they're wiped out. And the generation that comes behind them that could have inherited that is wiped out. Putting us behind two generations in many places, okay, those who have, who've have overcome that, and then asking the question of why are you guys so far behind? Okay, not them. part of the systemic. Racism in America is the inability to see uh, the log in your own eye that you pick at people who maybe have a splinter in theirs. Racism in, in this country is something that's created by non-white people, but it's up to us to fix it. Like, we're not going to fix it. You guys got to fix it. But you guys started it. Yeah, but we're not going to fix it. You fix it. And so that's what has been our cause from the time since I was four years old and a little girl told me I couldn't come to the party. That's who I've been. Well, how can listeners uh, keep up with you guys? You got a website or? So we you know, know, we we are moving toward a couple. You know, and let me talk about something that is, and it's probably months away, but we are we're looking to do a website and we're looking to go on the air with certain shows or parts of per certain shows by video. And that'll be maybe talking about Q&A that we can't get in the show. I like to keep the shows about 25 to 30 minutes. So we'll have some extra Q&A. There'll be behind the scenes where we're just talking to one another and cutting up. Okay giving people a chance to get to know who we are, not just by voice, because if you had heard the show until maybe you listen to the second one, we sound a lot alike. 
My brother's voice is a lot deeper. That's why he sort of leads the show and I'm his sidekick. Even though in real life, Curtis, I'm the boss. But on the air, he's the boss. He's the lead guy with the deeper voice. So we're looking to do now some things on video and put them on the website. And I, I'm investigating that now. So that's exciting. Thank you for asking that. So, Absolutely, man. Close us out with some final thoughts. Maybe something I forgot to touch on that you would like to touch on or just any final thoughts you have for the listeners. Man, just give me a minute to think about that's a great thing. And I haven't been here. Here's how I'll tell you, you know, and I'll give him, I hate to give my whole number away because people be like, oh, he old. And I'm really not, you know, at a certain age, but I'm not old because my mindset won't let me be that. Because age is a state of mind. But I guess the biggest thing that I would lead to people is, number one, be yourself. Um, this is, and I've been around, I'd say, well over 50 years, okay? Be yourself. Because that's the only person that you've had the most practice being is yourself. From the day you drew your first breath, you were working on being yourself. Why do you want to try to change that now? Why would you go ahead and continue to be the best that you can be at yourself? You have to be yourself because there's nobody else you can be. Everybody else is taken. I can't be Curtis Jackson. He's taken already. He's refined what it takes to be Curtis Jackson. So I'm going to be like, I might be able to steal a piece of him piece of his behavior, piece of his philosophy on life, but I have to continue to be myself. Other people go like, man, you acting just like Curtis Jackson, which is a great compliment to Curtis, but not really to me, because some people use the word acting like, be yourself. And that'll get you through a lot of things, including racial things, okay? Uh, difficulties that you have, be yourself, stay healthy, okay? But don't watch the late news if you want to sleep because it'll drive you crazy. Curtis, that's all, all the rest I have is idiocy, man. I appreciate this. Appreciate you. So one other thing, please. Just being brothers. Mike and Steve tackled every topic. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict. Wherever you listen to Curtis, you can listen to us. Absolutely. Listeners, make sure y'all check out that show. Follow, rate, review, and also follow and rate, review this show. Any topic suggestions or guest ideas, see Jackson102 at Cox.net. Please be sure to tell a friend about the show. Mm -hmm. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful day here, and I'm going to probably get out and take my walk. Thanks a lot, man. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.